Our text and sermon outline today are on pages 8 through 10. Wow. And this is the second in our series on the seven deadly, so-called deadly sins that are found in the Scriptures. Of course, the Bible teaches us very plainly that the wages of all sin is death. So these sins are really no more deadly than any others. But they are listed and set aside as such because they are in some ways are more dangerous, more subtle. And the devil uses them in a scheming way to touch our hearts and disrupt and distort our lives. The seven are pretty closely allied in the sense that they are excessive. Gluttony is excessively wanting food and drink and the things of this world. Envy is excessively wanting things that belong to other people. Greed is wanting more and more and more. Sloth is a desire to do less and less and less. Anger is concern that's out of control. And so it goes. Last week, gluttony. This week, lust. We come to see that there is a connection and that they are all of a piece. As sin clusters together, so does grace and mercy. So as we, as we begin this week, we're going to use as an illustration uh, the life of Joseph when he was in captivity in Egypt and had an encounter with Potiphar's wife. As we do so, we're reminded that lust mostly in Scripture has to do with inordinate sexual desire, but not all of it. We can lust after other things, as we'll see. But let's first now hear for a moment the Word of God as it is found in Genesis as that is, and as it is read now from Scott Hoganson. Joseph found favor in the eyes of his master and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care of the kingdom. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care of everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was a well-built, handsome man, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Go to bed with But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her servants. Look, she said, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave he brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. 
story of his life, telling him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him, and showed him kindness, and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison Lord. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Open our hearts, O Lord, to your work. Open us up like a surgeon and do what needs to be done to the recesses of our heart that we might see our folly, that we might run from our peril, and that we might serve you wholeheartedly. Through Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. So these deadly sins are not the worst sins we can think of but they are very, very dangerous. We would say that murder is worse than lust. And Jesus said, of course, when we lust after someone in our heart, that is a serious sin, but not more serious than actually carrying out the act of adultery. What he's asking us to do in, in what the theologians of the Middle Ages were asking us to do is to think more clearly about these things which tempt us and which the devil uses against us. And as I say in the outline, sexual misconduct and lust can touch almost every life. And we don't have to be alive in this world or aware of very many people to know that such things can wreck us. And lust is considered to be a very disruptive thing in the lives of the people of God. But not so in the world. The world says, you know, a little excitement. They asked uh, Mark Twain whether he would wanted to be in heaven or hell. He said, heaven for the weather, hell for the company. Drawn are we, drawn are we to the foolishness that sends us to hell. <coughs> Interested are we in those things which capture our attention and the focus of our eyes and drag us in their direction. In Dante's Inferno, the unforgiven souls of the sin of lust are blown about in a restless hurricane. They're rootless. Their lives were rootless. And like wind symbolic of their own lack of self-control to their lustful passions in the earthly life. Like gluttony, the opposite of lustful sin is self-control. One of the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, one might say that all of the deadly sins come back to that one particular fruit, self-control. As I say, it's closely related to gluttony in that it's the opposite of this fruit of the Spirit called self-control, but it involves both, both attitude and action. It's not just a, a thought pattern, it, it also involves acting upon it. Joseph faced many dangers in Egypt. This incident was one of the greatest. It could have been deadly. The, the penalty for such a, an accusation by an Egyptian against a slave was death. Often without a trial. Potiphar was a powerful man. He had many responsibilities. And he had come to trust Joseph, which will play into the story in a little bit later. He, he entrusted him with 
all of his affairs, both inside the house and outside. And so Potiphar gave Joseph a certain discretion that now made him vulnerable, not just to Potiphar's wife, but to many other inconsistencies. He could steal without perhaps being noticed. He could terrorize the servants without them having any recourse. There are many things that Joseph could have done, but it was a mark of his character and his trust in the Lord that though he was in a position of extreme weakness and had been elevated now to a position of great peril and yet responsibility, that he was faithful in it when no one was watching. So what is lust? Well, lust is in Scripture a desire that is out of order, usually related to some form of appetite like gluttony where we overdo it, particularly related to sexual relations. It says in verse 7 that she lifted up her eyes to him and she contemplated his beauty. Here again, as we saw last week, Sin, the, the dangerous sins, the deadly sins, often begin with the eyes. It wasn't her ears. It wasn't her taste. It was the eyes that, caught, that, that, got, that the devil used to catch her attention with him. Now, sexual desire in the scriptures within marriage is not sinful and not lustful per se. But sinful lust is desire out of control. We can read about positive uses of sexual desire in such places as Genesis 2, Proverbs 5, 1 Corinthians 7, and the Song of Solomon. The Bible's view of sex, as we shall see, is a positive one. It's a gift from God to man and wife. But like all good gifts, it can be perverted. And we see an excellent illustration of the attempt of that here. So lust is a desire that's out of order. And secondly, lust is desiring pleasure without a promise. Joseph's objection is, but you are his wife. Verse 9. Sex is designed, and he knew this long time ago. Sex is designed for use only between one man and one woman in a permanent exclusive bond called marriage. That's how it was designed. Is that how it's always used? No. The abuse of this is rampant in every culture and place and time. But it's a very simple boundary, a simple, very simple definition, a very easily understood intention by the one who gave it to us. Here is a gift. This is how you are to use it within the confines of a context of promise and covenant and commitment an exclusive, permanent bond called marriage between one man and one woman. The abuse of this is legendary. It's a simple definition. And when used this way, is a marvelous gift indeed. But the reason we have so many problems today related to this is because people refuse to submit to this guideline given in Genesis which Joseph is aware of and which he abides by, as we shall see. For sex is a sign, sexual relations are a sign of a complete life unity between two people who are committed to one another. 
It's never intended to be undertaken apart from a promise, from a commitment, from a deep exchange of personal character one with another. Sexual relations are also an expression of that reality of life unity that occur, occurs in other areas of the relationship. Husband and wife are not just one sexually, they're one of mind, they're one of prayer, they're one spiritually, they're brought together in all categories into a unit. Complementary, difference, yes, but unity, harmony is the goal. And sex is a picture of that, of, of a coming together of two people, very different, and yet one one in Christ and one together. This is the Christian sex ethic briefly stated, and it is utterly natural. It holds body and soul together in marriage. It's one of the, the part of the glue that brings husband and wife together. It is a good thing. We've been reading on Monday night in the book of Genesis about how the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and it was good on this day, and it was good that he did this, and it was good that he did that, and but it was not good that man should be alone. Not that everyone must be married, but, but marriage itself is a gift, a calling by God to us, and he, he gives a certain small hedge around it, a certain definition to it that makes it work. And we don't like it. Just as we don't like this rule and many others. But any other sexual ethic, which allows the man, for example, to, to be promiscuous and not the woman, or the woman and not the man, or any other sexual ethic pulls body and soul apart. If we are to do it the way the Bible says in the sexual relations department, we are to bring body and soul together. It's a, not only a picture of that, it's a consummation of that. If you say you want sexual relations with someone without marriage and commitment, you are talking out of both sides of the mouth. You're, you're breaking apart body and soul. You are separating the two. If you want to deny the sexual aspect of marriage, you are also dividing body and soul. Sex is not a bad thing within the confines of marriage and commitment. It's a good thing. But lust that leads to adultery, the seventh commandment, is ruinous. And jo Joseph was right on the edge of utter ruin. He just about fell off the precipice into enormous, perhaps deadly, problems. So how do we control lust? We're human beings. We desire food and drink and sexual satisfaction. It's part of how God made us. How do I control it? Well, as I say, lust is desiring pleasure without a person. I want something from you, but I don't want you. That's what we say when we lust unto activity and action. We say, I want something from you, but I don't want you. I want what you can do for me, maybe even what I can do for you, but I don't want you. And isn't that what Potiphar, we don't know what Potiphar's wife was thinking, but it seems that that's what she wanted. She saw that he was handsome, strong, available. Her husband was off how, who knows how long for who and where. This was an opportunity to have pleasure. 
She didn't want Joseph. She didn't know him. Had no idea what he was like as a human being. She wanted what he could do for her. So lust, if we're going to control it, begins by understanding that it is desiring pleasure without a person. Pleasure is a commodity. The pleasure is non-negotiable. The person is negotiable. When Potiphar's wife could not get the pleasure that she wanted, she didn't say, okay, then let's just talk. She didn't say, okay, let's have a cup of tea and get to know one another. She said, she accused him falsely of having done the thing that she wanted to do and that he refused of her. As I say, she did not care about Joseph. She wanted the pleasure. And lust, very simply put, is that. Desiring the pleasure without a person, wanting something from them but not wanting them. And a great illustration comes from 2 Samuel 13, a sordid story of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon seduces and rapes her, and the first thing he says afterwards is, get up and get out. Read about it there. That should be 2 Samuel 13. You can read 2 Samuel 13. Get up and get out. I got from you what I wanted. You gave me pleasure. I don't want you. Sin takes sexual desire, which is a good thing in the right circumstances, but turns it into sinful lust by making it an end in itself. Instead of a way to give pleasure to someone you know and love, it becomes simply a commodity that I've got to have, that I can buy. And so, as they say, the world's oldest profession is someone who's willing to sell, in male or female, sexual favors to someone who's a stranger, an utter and complete stranger. And the Bible never encourages that. And you can see that it's not just because it's against the act itself as a dangerous thing. It's against the, it, it breaks apart what God designed and intended for the human relations to be. The marriage itself is to be a sanctuary of body and soul brought together as a picture of unity in the marriage bond and in the church of Jesus Christ. And Joseph does a great job here. What does he do? Well, he controls his actions. He seems to have stayed away from her as much as possible. He didn't walk himself past her bedroom every day. He went about his duties. And as it were, she had to beckon him. She had to get his attention. He wasn't lurking outside his, her door, looking for the opportunity. He was going about his assignments. And the beginning of purity is purity. The outcome of rejection of these things begins with the small steps of commitment. He controls his actions. He stays away from her as much as possible. And as it begins to be an issue, he, he must have thought it over, for he says, how can I do this wicked thing? This is a sinful act, and it's against God. So to give in to your requests is to follow perhaps your God, but not mine. And to do as you say would be to commit sin. For we are not married. I don't know you. So under the application of this point, let us be reminded, brothers and sisters, that sexual relations are a foretaste 
and a sign that which point to the unbelievable joy and ecstasy of complete union with God. That day's coming. Sexual relations are a foretaste of that. Your sexuality within marriage points to an eternal union with Christ. You don't think of it that way, maybe. You just think of activity, non-spiritual interaction. But that's what it is. It's a picture of that. And if my sexual desires are out of control, it is because I'm trying to get something from somebody, maybe even my own wife, my own spouse, my own husband, either online or in person, who can never give it to me. For pleasure never comes just by itself except at an extremely high price. Pleasure and person are to be brought together in marriage, as I said. And if you seek only pleasure, even from your spouse, there's a distortion called lust that discards the person and all that they are in Christ for a moment's pleasure. So as I say, demote it. Don't let it drive you. Don't try to get something from it that it can never give. Always unsatisfying and unsatisfactory to abuse the plan that God has and to, and to distort his gifts. So demote it. Self-control comes from thinking of sex not negatively, but so gloriously that it puts it in its place here and now. And it is a good thing. It is God's idea, given to us to be used within the confines of marriage for the unity, spiritual and personal, of two people together. So we have the very real question then of healing our lustful problems, and it begins with verse 21. The Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Joseph was in this position because of his faithfulness. A slave, a Hebrew, who is now the superintendent of an important man's affairs. This did not happen every day. This wasn't something that just was widely done, evidently. It was a unique and special situation. Joseph had been faithful long before he met Potiphar and long before he met Potiphar's wife. And he was selected by Potiphar because Potiphar saw in him character, trustworthiness. This is a man that I can walk away and leave and he won't steal from me, either time or money, and he will do as I say, and he will be good at it. He will be faithful and effective at it. Joseph had a track record, and it was a good one. It was a strong one. He was known for this, and so much so that cultural barriers and racial barriers were, were, were crossed as the Egyptian selects the Hebrew to be his, not just his slave, but his superintendent. So we must know that there was some context here. Potiphar knew Joseph for some time. How long, we don't know, but for some time. 
and he was willing to trust Joseph. And over the course of that time, evidently, in no way did Joseph betray that trust, not with his wife or with anything else. That's the context of the story. One lonely Hebrew young man who was faithful when no one was watching. He wasn't just faithful in rejecting her overtures. He had been faithful for years or months or long enough to impress his contemporaries that he could be trusted. In other words, God blessed him for his faithfulness and his character. And it seems that that saved his life. Now she claims that she screamed and the household help wasn't around so they really probably couldn't have said one way or the other, but they carried the story and she carried the story to him and Potiphar had a decision to make. A decision that touched his wife and his marital relationship, a decision that touched his household as Joseph was his superintendent, a decision that touched his standing in the community for this kind of thing is never hidden from gossip. Potiphar is in a bad spot, and his wife has put him there by her false accusations. The easiest thing, I think, as I've reflected on this, the easiest thing for him to do would have been to just give Joseph the full measure of the law and had him killed. On the testimony, false though it was, of his, of his Egyptian wife, Joseph could have been executed perhaps without even a decent examination of the facts. But it seems that Joseph's integrity saved his life here, for he was only in prison. Now, it says he was greatly angered. One wonders how genuine that anger was, or whether he had been used to such things from Potiphar, from his wife, I mean. And whether he tended to believe Joseph more than her. Probably. You don't put somebody in charge of your affairs that you don't trust. And you don't break that trust over one unsubstantiated incident from someone who can't prove what she's claiming. So he's angry, probably most angry at her because this situation has put him in such a bad light, but he throws Joseph in prison instead of killing him. He has to do something. There must be some response and punishment from this accusation, whether it's true or not, so he puts him in prison. He knew his wife, and he probably tended to believe Joseph, but he couldn't just believe a Hebrew slave. So he puts him in, in prison, and the story then unfolds from there as God again raises Joseph up for his faithfulness and blesses him for his adherence to the scriptures. Now here is a man, we must understand, who has nothing. He has no family. He has no money. He has no standing. He has no friends. He has nothing in this world except God. And the law which God has given him to live by. And he lives by it. And he is exalted again and again and again by the Lord who gave him that law. There is a connection between faithfulness and obedience and the blessing of God. And if we will say no to the sins of the world, 
no to our heart when it is out of order. We will be blessed. How and when, I can't tell you. But over and over again in the scriptures, it is true. And so to conclude, what if I find myself a lot more like Potiphar's wife than Joseph? What if I find myself caught up in these things? What if I find myself captured by this dangerous and deadly sin we call lust? Well, I would respond that as with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus still calls sin, sin, but he does not cast a stone. You are guilty, but I do not condemn you because I will take the stones that should come to you so you can be holy and blameless in his sight. Go and sin no more. I will take the penalty for your sin. And though your record is sullied by your lustful actions and thoughts, nevertheless, I will stand in your place and I will put my record uh, to your account and your record to my account and I will give you eternal life. I will give it to you. By definition, you don't deserve it. There's nothing that you... You haven't been like Joseph. You've been the opposite of, of Joseph. You've been like Potiphar's wife. Nevertheless, though that is wrong, I have come to redeem you, to buy you back from your slavery to sin, to redeem you, to pull you out of the poverty of soul that led to this. So what do I do? Well, I put something, as we said last week from Thomas Chalmers, Put something in your life that's more beautiful than what you lust after. There is an effulsive power, an expulsive power to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he becomes the desire, our most ardent desire, when knowing and walking with him becomes preeminent, there is hope. There is cleansing. There is a reordering of priorities. I want to close by turning to the cover of our bulletins now and a brief part of a hymn by William Cooper. Something of a commentary on what we've read this morning. Tis thus the world rewards the fools that live upon her treacherous smile. She leads them blindfolded by her rules and ruins all whom she beguiles. O oh, fearful thought, be timely wise. Delight but in the Savior's charms. And God shall take you to your hope, embraced in everlasting love. Isn't that beautiful? Hold that out there. O oh, fearful thought, be timely wise. Pull away like Joseph did. Delight in the... How can I do this thing against God? Delight in His charms preeminently. And God shall take you to your hope, satisfy your needs by being embraced in His everlasting arms. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, we all struggle to some extent with these things. You know it. We're fools to try to hide it from you. And we pray that you would use the marvelous power of the Holy Spirit to clean us up to have us desire your everlasting arms more than the arms of anyone else. 
Help us to be faithful to our spouses and to the promises we've made to them. Help us to be exclusive in our love and expression of sexual relations, both in thought and in deed, and free us from the bondage that comes when lust takes hold. Thank you for Joseph's faithfulness, and thank you for the way you will reward us, too, if we are faithful in this way. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bore our sins, which otherwise would choke and imprison us forever. You bore our sins on the cross that we might be free, now and forevermore. And we make our prayer this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So now to conclude and to respond. Asking for his guidance, number 598. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, let's stand and sing together.